sometimes in a disaster, there's a lot of talking to that happens. First responders, politicians, journalists, understandably getting information out as fast as they can. Greater Houston remains paralyzed, a region of 6.8 million people. We are just beginning the process of responding to the storm. Please help us. I'm scared. More than 30,000 people are now expected in shelters. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And while we won't know Hurricane Harvey's economic toll for a while, it's already taken and reshaped lives. The latter part of today's show is a special that we brought you on globalization. But first, we are starting with a conversation about disasters and real life. Not with us talking to you, but two people talking to each other. Hi, Marcy. I'm Matt Fannin. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Matt Fannin lives in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This time last year, his city was flooded. 140,000 homes were affected, and they're still recovering. Marcy Mattias, she's in Cypress, Texas, just northwest of Houston. Earlier this week, we got them on the phone to talk to each other and share their experiences. I mean, the hurricane came in Friday evening, and the rain that's when the rain started, probably 11 o'clock last night. It was, you know, two feet or so from my front door. We were concerned. We don't have flood insurance. We don't live in a flood plain and never, certainly never have seen anything like this in our area before. I experienced last year uh, the August flooding uh, in the Baton Rouge area. We had water come right up to us, but we did not flood. So, like me. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, just just like you. Not having flood insurance and thinking you don't need it um, is, it just kind of puts you in a panic situation when something like this happens. It's very stressful. Even though I'm telling myself over and over again, it's just stuff. It doesn't matter. We still uh, spent all of yesterday moving everything upstairs in our house or putting it up on on bricks, um, I started searching, what do you do if you are flooded? Um, one of the first things I read was start taking photos of everything in your house so that you have proof that this is what my house looked like and you're going to try and get it back to that if necessary. So that's how I spent my day, just researching that and checking water levels. We had lots of markers out front so we could see where it was coming. I can tell you that once you go through one of those flood events like last year, everyone becomes on edge when you hear any type of heavy rainfall coming. I mean, I would imagine you know. it's it's a little PTSD like you flash back to the fear, right? Yes, and that fear occurs regardless of whether you actually had flooding or not because when you have friends that flooded and it's all around you, you think, well, it might be me this time. I'm curious, now that you've lived through this and survived it, d did you buy flood insurance? My wife and I are actually uh, have been uh, discussing that. One of the things, we did uh, check out pricing. And if you're not in an area that requires flood insurance, the cost is uh, much lower. And so it's low cost for peace of mind. I can, I can say that for sure. I mean, on my street down at one end, there have been people who've got water in their house. Does that make a difference? I mean, I think in the long term, it really comes down to whether or not the um, maps that define whether or not you're in a 100-year floodplain or not change. 
we know where you're at and we're praying for you. And I know that uh, many of us are looking for the opportunity to, to help. Thank you for that. That's Marcy Mattias from Cypress, Texas. You heard her talking with Matt Fannin from Baton Rouge about life after a flooding disaster. And you can read more about their phone call on our website. Just go to marketplace.org. When disasters like Harvey hit, people get help from the government, companies, neighbors, strangers. And one thing we've seen in Houston, a big response from the faith community. While Joel Osteen was criticized for not immediately opening his Lakewood megachurch as a shelter, lots of churches, mosques, and temples have been taking in their neighbors. Plus, they're raising money and giving out supplies. That's what Rabbi Oren Hayon is doing at his synagogue, Congregation Emmanuel. Our congregation is uh, about close to 2,000 families, representing a, a really significant chunk of the Jewish population of Houston. And responding to Harvey means figuring out what families need right now. The one thing that we've done this week is to set up a full-day day camp starting tomorrow throughout the whole holiday weekend. It's uh, a day camp that will be open all day long, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner to kids of all ages whose families have been affected by the storm. In some ways, Hyon says, a religious group that knows its community can get money out the door faster than some parts of the government or national groups. Financially, yes. I think also we can be particularly agile in collecting financial contributions and dispersing them uh, fairly quickly and and fairly nimbly because the, the gifts come from the heart. They're distributed in ways that are immediately effective and immediately meaningful. That's not to say that we take the place of some of those organizations and federal agencies because we really, really need them. But I think that there's a a really terrific partnership and synergy between local faith organizations and state and federal agencies to help with the relief effort after a storm like this. And after all, taking care of people is part of being a house of worship of any kind. Every religious tradition worth its salt spends a lot of time thinking and planning about how to take care of people who are vulnerable and people who are victimized by the world. Houston is also a really wonderful place where representatives of all faith traditions work and collaborate and cooperate very, very amicably and productively. We're starting to see the development of really strong coalitions of religious professionals and religious organizations across denominations and across faith communities. All of this work is going to go on for a long time, given how much damage Harvey has done. That means Hayon and his synagogue are probably going to pivot a lot as the recovery goes on. Well, there's certainly no way to estimate the scope of the need. It's, it is absolutely inestimable and absolutely goes beyond anything that we can imagine at this point. In terms of the kind of aid we can offer, it's going to change over time. For now, the, the help that we're trying to offer is for folks who need assistance in getting a hotel room or getting a clean towel so they can take a shower. A week from now, it may change to helping people get apartments and being able to afford a down payment on a new car. A year from now, it may be deeper kinds of assistance in helping folks recover the, the long-term assets that have vanished in the storm. Our ability to help can evolve over time as the needs of the community evolve. That was Rabbi Oren Hayon from Houston's Congregation Emmanuel.
You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. In just a bit, my colleagues from the Marketplace Sustainability Desk will take over the rest of the show. But first, we're talking about Hurricane Harvey. When disaster strikes, the human impulse is to help, and often that means with money. Some people we talked to in New York were a little hesitant. I am skeptical about donations. I'm not sending money. I'm giving leashes and that kind of stuff for animals, for pets, for dogs. You want to, like, make sure you're impacting the people who are suffering. People are wary because of things like a 2014 investigation by NPR and ProPublica. It showed that the American Red Cross, the country's lead disaster relief group, mishandled donations. Still, people want to give. Lori Massad donated to the Red Cross as soon as she heard about the flooding. And then I gave more when I saw how bad it was, so I probably gave three days in a row. So when you donate, where do your dollars actually go? We decided to follow that journey. We're starting with Michael Thatcher. He heads the nonprofit watchdog Charity Navigator. He says before donating, do your research. This is a good rule of thumb to just know that this is a healthy charity. So you find a place you believe in and send out, let's say, a single dollar bill. First, it's processed by the charity's bank. They have your bill. Where that green goes next depends on a big question. Is your dollar designated or undesignated? That means, is it marked for a specific cause or can the charity use it as they see fit? Thatcher says that if you trust them, give an undesignated gift. Think of it as an investment. You're essentially letting them make the right choices with that money. Okay, you decide whether to mark your funds. Send out the bill and the journey begins. To learn what happens next, we head over to Renee Wizig-Barrios with the Greater Houston Community Foundation. She oversees the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund created by Houston's mayor. There, your dollar turns into a grant for a local group. A lot of it will go to, to um, places people would absolutely expect, rebuilding homes, mitigating um, damage, um, ensuring that people have access to food and um, shelter. Your dollar could hang out for a bit and then be deployed later to a long-term project, like housing recovery or mental health services. But let's say your dollar goes straight into action through a quick grant, or you donate directly to a place on the ground, like the Houston Food Bank, where people are working around the clock. Not a lot of hours of sleep, but, um, you know, it, that's I'm safe and dry. That's Amy Reagan, the food bank's chief development officer who manages donations. She says if a dollar comes in specifically for disaster relief, it can be put right to use. We can do a lot more with that dollar than you or anyone else can when, if they go to the grocery store. She says they can turn one dollar into three meals. So why is your dollar suddenly going further than at your grocery store? Well, the food bank gets cheaper food prices or has food that's already been donated. Reagan says that bill goes where they need it, for fuel and transportation to bring in food. You know, tractor-trailer loads of food so that we can make sure that we've got pallets and pallets of and hundreds and thousands of pounds of non-perishable food, you know, loaded into our trucks and then taken on the road. And there, your dollar goes where you wanted it to in the first place, to people. For more on how to donate, you can go to our website, marketplace.org. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. 
I'm Lizzie O'Leary. I mentioned earlier that we're going to spend a big chunk of time today going in-depth on globalization and why it's become so polarizing. For that, I'm handing the reins of the show to two of my colleagues, starting with Scott Tong. Thank you, Lizzie. Welcome to Tradeoff, a marketplace special about the globalization backlash. How did we get here and what happens next? I'm Scott Tong, correspondent for Marketplace's Sustainability Desk, joined by... Sarah Gardner, fellow Marketplace reporter. Hi, everybody. For the last few months, we've been reporting on the discontent with open trade and open borders voiced in American politics. Now, to critics, other countries are getting a better deal, to use a word near and dear to our president, who is pushing to limit immigration and trade deals. To be sure, this chorus to raise the drawbridge has been building for years, but now it's starting to matter. The obvious case in point is the election. Build a wall! Build a wall! And the U.S. isn't the only place with those rumblings. There's Brexit, the U.K.'s vote to leave the European Union, plus more Mm -hmm. right-wing nationalist candidates, France, the Netherlands. To me personally, this is remarkable. It's a little bit jarring. See, I grew up largely overseas in places that had to connect with the rest of the world. But more to the point, I grew up in the 80s, when the end of the Cold War taught us that open borders and capitalism and free trade, they won. Right. The end of history, the new world order, right? I graduated in 1991 from Georgetown, and I went back with a few classmates to ask, what happened? So here's my good friend Cynthia Bertolini, global citizen. She went to Europe after graduation, married a nice Italian man. She's remembering the Berlin Wall falling junior year. I remember vividly watching the the wall come down and thinking about there is no more East Germany, there is no more West Germany, and thinking, what could that mean elsewhere in the world in terms of opening up? Well, she got her answer. It meant eventually the European Union. Free movement of people, Mm -hmm. money, goods, the same currency. But politics focuses on the cost, the human costs, of course. Now, the key to open trade is to find a way to take care of the so-called losers, the casualties of free trade, if you will. Here's political scientist Jennifer Tobin. I spoke to her at Georgetown on my little back-to-school trip. We know who's going to lose their jobs from this, and so we need to create policies that redistribute towards them. And that didn't occur. And that didn't occur around the world. And we should point out here, Scott, that outsourcing didn't take away all those jobs. Mm -hmm. Robots and automation have done a lot of that, too, especially in recent years. But when the losses sting, and they do, it's easier to blame other countries and people than machines. So here's my takeaway from going back to school. Free trade and globalization seemed the normal state of things back then and for most of my adult life. But maybe it's not the norm. And perhaps if you step back in time enough, it may actually be the exception. Jamie Martin is an incoming history professor at Georgetown. Globalization is not inevitable. It won't necessarily proceed smoothly. Globalization, far from being inevitable, could easily go into reverse or even collapse. And that happened in the 1930s at the start of the Depression in Europe, here in the U.S. Populism and protectionism and nationalism prevailed. Borders won. Economists lost. World trade collapsed. And those swings between protectionism and free trade, that's what we're going to look at. (music) 
we've come to think of free trade as very American, right? Very free market capitalism. But if you go back to the beginning of the U.S. economy, we did not start out that way. Okay, so how far back are we going? Well, we're actually going all the way back to this guy. Don't be shocked when your history book mentions me. I will lay down my life if it sets us free. Eventually, you'll see my ascendancy. Alexander Hamilton? I'm assuming you're talking about, I don't know, the musical or the guy. You know what? I'll let you take it from here. Okay, here we go. So protectionism can mean a lot of things. It can be a tax on imports, a ban on immigrants from a certain country, or a rule limiting foreign investment. But it all comes down to gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. America has a long history of keeping out imports when it suits us. And that goes as far back as, yes, Hamilton. You might call him our original protectionist. Uh Now, the Broadway musical skipped over that part. So to find that Hamilton... You actually have to go to Jersey. Patterson, New Jersey. Drive through town and you pass bodegas, pawn shops, discount stores. And then you come to something totally unexpected. A national park, complete with a wisecracking park ranger, smoky bear hat and all. My name's Elise, and I'm highly entertaining. Elise Goldman is Supervisory Park Ranger at Patterson Great Falls National Historical Park. This is where the Passaic River falls into a stunning 77-foot chasm. All right, get your cameras ready. It is a beautiful view. Goldman tells us Alexander Hamilton actually picnicked here with George Washington during the American Revolution. They ate cold ham and tongue. They drank alcohol. And maybe they planted the first seeds of American manufacturing. Now, we don't know what they said exactly, so Goldman invents some lines for Hamilton. He gets up from the picnic, he goes over to the chasm, he looks at the falls, and he says, wow, you know, water's powerful. Powerful enough to turn water wheels to run cotton mills. The British had banned the colonies from importing anything that would empower them to build their own factories. So after the U.S. wins its independence, Hamilton, he's now Treasury Secretary, he wants to change that. An aide writes to him suggesting Passaic Falls might be a good place to build textile mills. He's sitting at a desk. It's late one night. He reads the letter and says, oh, my God, I totally remember that place. We had tongue." So Hamilton gets some investors together, and he makes the intellectual argument for homegrown industries in something called the Report on Manufacturers, a real slog, but important. So we took a cue from Hamilton the Musical and translated a key idea from the report into lyrics. Now, stay with me. I'm not going to perform, I promise. We called in a professional, Javon Carter from the Stooges Brass Band. All right, man, let me get this here shot. So you want to be free? So you want to be free? So you of British tyranny? Of British tyranny? Then gentlemen build? Then gentlemen build? An American factory? An American factory? We tax the goods so high. It'll be foolish to buy. Anything but American. By American. Tax imports by American. You get the idea. That's part of what economists call the infant industries argument for protectionism. Helping shield fledgling industries from seasoned foreign competitors so they can get big enough to play with the big kids someday. Hamilton also pushed for government subsidies, money to give homegrown industries a competitive edge. That's another kind of protectionism, but that wasn't as popular back then. 
Now, Hamilton didn't live to see it. He died in 1804 after dueling with the vice president. But eventually, after several decades, the experiment at Passaic Falls worked. Patterson became a quintessential American factory town. That small building was the powerhouse to the Ivanhoe paper mill. Paper and cotton, silk, guns. Patterson and other early American industrial cities succeeded partly because Congress imposed tariffs on foreign goods. In 1816, the U.S. adopted the first tariff specifically to keep out imports, not just feed government coffers. And that launched a long history of American protectionism and a fierce debate over free trade that's still alive today. I think it's hard for us nowadays to appreciate the extent to which in the 19th century, the tariff was, for many people, a religious conviction. American historian Eric Rauschway at the University of California, Davis. Of course, for Republicans and for the majority view uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, to be pro-tariff was to be American. In fact, some called the GOP the grand old protectionists. Free trade sounded mm, suspiciously unpatriotic. So protectionism, not free trade, was the American way for much of our history. We hear President Trump complain that China unfairly props up its steel industry, dumping cheap steel into global markets. That makes it hard for American steel to compete. People lose their jobs. Well, reality check... We were an emerging protectionist nation once, too. But there's a wrinkle here, and an important one. Some people argue, look, protectionism built America, and we developed into a world power by putting America first. But what that argument overlooks is the fact that we were completely open to migration, so we had a lot of immigrants. Dartmouth historian Douglas Irwin says on the whole... We were completely open to capital flows, and we borrowed a lot of money from British financiers. We were completely open to foreign technology. So we weren't really a closed economy in the 19th century. We were limited trade, but we were open in terms of ideas, capital, the movement of people. At the end of that tour in Patterson, I ask another tourist, Antonio Montez, what he thinks about free trade. He's worked in manufacturing, law enforcement, now private security. And like a lot of Americans, Montez is searching for that sweet spot when it comes to globalization. Free trade, I heard us in an extent, but at the same time, free trade, that helped us. But I think we need to look more and, and, and be protective of the U.S., because uh, personally, I've been overseas, a veteran. We give a lot to other countries, and we're not getting nothing back in return. Alexander Hamilton might have related. He wanted to put America first, too. But Hamilton also understood that protectionism comes at a cost, namely higher prices for consumers. In that big biography about Hamilton that was the basis for the musical, the author, Ron Chernow, writes that in Hamilton's vision for America, tariffs would be moderate, temporary, and repealed as soon as possible. When I was digging into America's protectionist history, Scott, I did stumble onto actual songs about protectionism, believe it or not. Okay, it was my understanding there would be no singing. <laughs> well, I didn't I didn't promise that. <laughs> now, actually, this song is quite catchy. Don't make fun of it, Scott. It's a campaign song from 1896. All right. That's I'm when listening. Democrat William Jennings Bryan ran against Republican William McKinley. Now, he was a protectionist, and mm. McKinley's supporters wrote a song about how great his policies were going to be. It's actually called McKinley 
protection. I found the sheet music, and we got this amazing men's choir in Minneapolis, Cantus, to bring it to life. Our great manufactories are all standing still without McKinley protection. That's why all the gold is locked up in the till without McKinley protection. Just shut up our markets to the foreigners' mill and give us the laborers a chance at the till. And we'll bring back prosperity over the hill when we get McKinley protection. So, Scott, Mm. did you catch that line? Just shut up our markets to the foreigner's mill and give us the laborers a chance at the till. Ah, there it is. A chance at the till. A chance at the auto factory, a chance at the carrier plant in Indiana that was going to go to Mexico. Right. It sounds so modern. Yeah. And this was just the starting point. Welcome back to Marketplace Weekend. You're listening to Tradeoff, a Marketplace special report on globalization. Hey, Sarah. Yeah, Scott. What do we really owe the people who've lost out to free trade? Well, before I answer that, let's play a clip from that TV show, The West Wing. Now, this was from 2004, and they're asking that very same question. Do you ever wonder if we forget the human face of trade, the blood and muscle? You have to go with what grows the economy for everyone. There's blood and muscle in India, too. So, Scott, compensating the so-called losers, I'd rather call them casualties, actually, of globalization, it's complicated. There isn't really a passionate, powerful constituency to stand up for the people or the towns Mm. who stand to lose jobs. And this goes back to the early 1970s. I talked to economist Fred Burkston. He's 76 years old now. I think you've interviewed him, Scott. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Fred Burkston, founding director of the what's now the Peterson Institute of International Economics. Right. But back then in the 70s, Burkston chaired a Chamber of Commerce task force to figure out a better way to help American workers who had lost jobs in the free trade economy. At that time, imports from Japan were getting to be a concern. Now, there was a small program in place to help those people, but it was so narrow that in the first six years, not a single American worker qualified for the benefits, if you can believe it. Wow. So Bergston writes up the task force findings, and he remembers taking this 20-page report to the Chamber of Commerce board. So I entered their sanctum, their boardroom, took the podium— I presented our report. Very, very vigorous debate ensued. And that's because Bergston's report called for a lot more money for more workers, relocation assistance, even money for whole communities affected by plant closures. But while that plan was great for workers, it created problems for some industries in that chamber boardroom. If the government could really cushion the blow for, say, steel workers who lost jobs to foreign competition, that would make the loss of steel jobs less of a big deal, right? And it would weaken steel companies' argument for protectionist trade barriers. Oh, I see. If you cushion the blow a little bit, then suddenly this industry doesn't have as much of an urgent emergency case to bring to Washington. Exactly. And Berkston says even some of the free trade advocates on the chamber's board worried that a bigger federal program would just draw unwanted attention to the numbers of Americans losing jobs to trade. 
to me, that was dramatic. And we've seen that more or less in the 40-plus years since where politicians who support free trade are often unwilling to draw the logical inference that you have to take care of the downsides and the costs and the losers if you're going to sustain the free trade politically. Now, I went to rural Wisconsin where there are or were all these paper mills. Uh, But in 10 years, that state lost a third of its paper mill jobs. That was from 2005 to 2015. I met a former mill worker named Mark Van Stappen, who worked at a paper mill in northeastern Wisconsin for almost 30 years. I started at the bottom on some horrendously hardworking jobs where you threw logs all day into grinders, you know. But it was kind of cool. It was all right. It was sort of therapeutic. It was an okay type of deal. Now, when Van Stappen lost his job, globalization not only hit him, but it hit his wife, too. My wife was working part-time when I worked at the mill. And immediately she says, I have to go work full-time. I have to. We no longer have stability in our lives, you know. So Van Stappen's wife took a job at a company making envelopes. And he took a job, he told me, at a small green energy startup at a couple dollars an hour less. He said the health insurance was terrible and he had a longer commute. I also talked to Van Stappen's former co-worker, Andy Nerschel. Now, Nerschel briefly thought about going back to school, you know, taking advantage of some retraining money to try for another career. But he told me, you know, it just wasn't for him. I looked a little bit into training, but I didn't especially care for school when I was in high school, so I wasn't looking at going back again. I tried a couple different paper mill jobs that I thought, but I didn't get hired at any. So, Scott, this is partly why the big retraining or reinvention promise is oversold. People don't or can't move to where the growth jobs are or they're too old to retrain or they can't afford to take the time off to go back to school, Mm -hmm. even with federal money. And the numbers bear this out. A 2014 survey of some laid-off mill workers in Wood County, Wisconsin, it showed that a little under 39% chose to participate in career retraining programs. Yeah, you know, as you say that, Sarah, it just reminds me of talking to out-of-work coal miners in southern Illinois who say, you know, school is not for me. I work with my hands. Yeah. Now, policymakers and economists, they might assume workers will move or retrain, but It seems to me they're still trying to understand why so many people actually don't. Welcome back to Marketplace Weekend. You're listening to Tradeoff, a Marketplace special report on globalization. I'm Scott Tong. And I'm Sarah Gardner. So we've heard about Alexander Hamilton's fondness for tariffs, but that was by no means the only time the U.S. pushed protectionism. Well, I have just two words for you, Scott. Smoot Hawley. Ah, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> We've been saying those words a lot lately. We have. The names of the two politicians who pushed the infamous protectionist tariff bill. Now, that was in 1930, and it's infamous yep. because, or so the story goes, it tipped us into the Great Depression. Well, I'm sorry to break it to you, but that is not what yep. happened. And it's worth taking time to understand what actually did happen, because protectionism often doesn't make great economic sense, but it can make sense politically. And Smoot-Hawley is a perfect example of that. 
even though if you believe the movies, Smoot-Hawley is the most boring chapter in American history. The most boring ever. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the... Anyone? Anyone? The Great Depression. Ah, yes. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, circa 1986. That's the classroom scene. Passed the... Anyone? Anyone? A tariff bill, the Hawley Smoot Tariff Act, which... Ben Stein, comedian and real-life economist, plays the teacher while his students snooze, drool, skip altogether the Smoot-Hawley protectionism class. Bueller? Bueller? But it's actually a fascinating tragedy that leads to an economic train wreck. Our protagonist and tragic hero is Reed Smoot. Republican senator from Utah, and the powerful chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. See, Smoot was a Mormon and a very high-ranking leader of the Church of Latter-day Saints. A devout gentleman, and as it turns out, a devout protectionist. Back then, the Mormon church dominated the sugar beet industry out west. Mormon historian Matthew Godfrey has written all about it. Wilford Woodruff, who was president and the prophet of the LDS church when they got into the sugar business, said that he had had a revelation from God that the church needed to get into the sugar business. So Mormon farmers grew beets, and the church controlled a huge sugar company, Utah-Idaho Sugar. In a little town that hugs the Wasatch Mountains called Spanish Fork, you can still see the remains of one of the company's sugar beet factories. Now it's located right by uh, I-15. You can hear the cars going by. We approach a dark, abandoned space and peek inside. A century ago, this was where the sugar beets were sliced up and ground into a pulp before extracting the sugar. So it looks to me like there's a chute up there that the beets would drop down into. Senator Smoot wanted to protect Utah's beet sugar from the imported stuff, mostly cane sugar. He used kind of very nativistic philosophies of the time believing that white Americans were kind of the premier race at the time. And so he believed that if you could support an industry that included farmers who were white Americans, that that was more beneficial than relying on sugar that was grown by individuals from Cuba or areas outside of the United States. Not only was that morally and economically dubious, it wasn't necessary. In the late 1920s, imported crops were not what really sank American farmers. Prices were low all over the world. But the good protectionists didn't let that fact get in the way. The Republican Party had to be seen as doing something to help farmers to win the farm vote in the Midwest. That's Doug Irwin, Dartmouth economist, who wrote the book on Smoot-Hawley. It's called Peddling Protectionism. He says Congress initiates tariff hearings in 1929, at which point our nice little help the farmers package gets hijacked by city folks, a.k.a. Eastern manufacturers. That's what brings out all the lobbyists and the industry groups saying this is an opportunity for us to sort of piggyback on uh, the farm tariff by uh, getting higher tariffs on ball bearings and steel and textiles and shoes and bricks. And bottle caps and sprinkler tops. And collapsible tubs and antimony, whatever that is. Here's Irwin reading from a section in his book on Kraut. The National Kraut Packers Association called for an increase in the duty on kraut from 30% to 50%. A small firm in Maine requested a duty on canned sardines be raised from 30% to 50%. Someone from Ohio asked the tariff on imported goldfish to be increased to 35%. Ah, the vital pet fish sector. <laughs> so how did this happen? Well, have you ever heard of congressional log rolling? Anyone? 
Anyone? Tong? Um, kind of. Okay. Say we chop down a tree together. Mm-hmm. I help you roll a bunch of logs to your house. You help roll some to mine. Or in this case, you support my tariff. I support yours. Ah, which helps all of us do one thing. Charge higher prices because of less competition. Well, the bill passes the House and it moves over to the Senate. And now we get to smoot and smut. Wait a minute. Did you just say smut? Uh, yes, I did. Our Mormon protagonist also wants to ban the import of obscene materials. He took a particular umbrage, for example, at D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover for having obscene passages in it. You can Google them later. And apparently he had a big stack of these books saying, you know, this is obscene material. We, we shouldn't be allowing this in the country. And people were pointing him saying, well, why are you have all these books? What are you doing reading them? How did uh, you get them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did you get them? Smoot smites smut is the famous headline of the day. So the bill adds that, and it keeps moving. Nobody stops it. Though a bunch of economists try, 1,028 of them. They write a letter to President Herbert Hoover warning it would lead to higher prices at home and retaliatory tariffs from America's trading partners. But Congress disses them as blah-blah intellectuals. Take these two Republican senators, reenacted here. I am not overawed by the proclamation of college professors who never earned a dollar by the sweat of their brow by honest labor. Free trade intellectuals seem more concerned with the prosperity of foreigners than the well-being of our own American people. Journalists oppose this too. But somebody else's voice is entirely missing from this debate. Can you guess who that is? Anyone? Gardner? I think it was consumers. You got it. And pay attention here. This is the key to why protectionism is so often a political winner. Consumers who stand to pay a little bit more for sugar or sauerkraut tend not to protest. We'll call it the who cares effect. Protectionism only sticks consumers with a nickel more here, a nickel more there. So who cares? But producers, a few producers pocket all those nickels. They care. So even though it made bad economic sense, the bill made good political sense. And all the industries that successfully lobbied loved it. In June 1930, President Hoover signs Smoot-Hawley into law. And then something happens that those pesky economists predicted. A trade war. Again, Doug Irwin. Other countries began to mimic the U.S., saying, well, if the U.S. is going to become isolationist, maybe we should do the same thing as well. So it sort of unleashes this dynamic, the falling dominoes, where other countries move in a protectionist direction as well. So all this breeds ill will and a rising ultranationalism in Europe in the 1930s. So what exactly was the damage from Smoot and Hawley's big adventure? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? Now, economists generally agree that the bill did not plunge us into depression. We were in the soup already. But it certainly didn't create jobs. And it probably deepened the depression since it shattered world trade. Everybody lost their global customers. It also flipped the conversation about trade on its head. Up until the 1930s, protectionism was generally seen as a good, sort of patriotic thing. Smoot-Hawley really just made protectionism a bad word. And it was associated with all sorts of things, declining exports, declining employment, Great Depression, ill will among foreign countries. It really did discredit protectionism as a doctrine in American political life. The lesson here is a timeless one. Some call it the golden rule of protectionism. Tariff unto others as you would have them tariff unto you.
Welcome back to Marketplace Weekend. You're listening to Tradeoff, a Marketplace special report on globalization. And for our last story, you're going to give us a global perspective from Kansas City. Did I read that right, Scott? Uh, That's right. You can actually tell a bunch of the India economic story from the Indian diaspora. One way to understand how fast the Indian economy is running is to join Indian men who are running. On a cricket pitch in Kansas City. Really, this is a technology city, home to companies like Sprint and Garmin. These software and IT professionals spend their Saturdays batting and pitching. I mean, bowling. League president Suresh Kanan bats righty, works for Sprint. When I came here back in 97, there was only maybe a couple of teams. Not great players. You got to go call players and beg them to come to play, you know. Since then, total number of players are around 600. The Indian community here, now 7,000 strong, has boomed as the economy back home has exploded. It's a global story of Indian talent connecting with U.S. education and technology and investment. India's economy is now growing at 7% a year. It's the fastest-growing large country in the world. And this is a story of what economists call catch-up, where poor countries adopt proven technology and ideas by opening up to the outside world. But for all the whooping, there's now tension, as the Indians here question how open the U.S. is to them. In February, at a bar in the suburb of Olathe, a white man shot two Indian men. IT workers, cricket teammates, and killed one. The shooter first asked about the men's immigration status. Aviva Ejmera is an Indian-American who works as a business strategy consultant in Kansas City. Even if you're born and raised here, when something like the shooting in Olathe happens in your community, everybody feels vulnerable because we look different. Now she looks over her shoulder more often, watches other people watching her even though the city rallied for its immigrants right after the shooting. The Kansas City community, not just the Indian community, came together just to show support for the Indian community. I mean, kind of the message was, yeah, that happened and it was awful, but that's not our city. The concern is not just the shooting. People of Indian descent have heard President Trump talk about limiting trade deals and visas. And they heard ex-White House strategist Steve Bannon blast South Asians in a Breitbart talk radio show. You know, when three quarters of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are from South Asia or from Asia, I think on, on, on on my point is that a country's more than an economy. We're a civic society. The resentment could have something to do with who's catching up. For three decades now, fast-growing economies like India and China have narrowed the gap with the rich world, while working-class incomes in the U.S. have stayed flat. Economist Branko Milanovic at the City University in New York says one does not cause the other, but some might think it does. That was seen as one indication of why there was disenchantment with globalization or why maybe these people voted uh, you know, in favor of Brexit or Trump. In Kansas City, fewer college applications from India are landing. And fewer Indians are being hired by companies nervous that the visa rules could change. Now, there's no wholesale exodus, but things have changed since the earliest IT workers came in the early 90s. Back then, India was just emerging from a Soviet-style, centrally planned economy. As in one TV channel, says Suresh Kanan of the Cricket League. If you have a TV, you are a rich person. We basically forced our parents to buy TV. And we bought a color TV, and um, we were like a popular family around the neighborhood. Um, they used to call us a color TV family. <laughs> then in 1991, India's government opened up the country dramatically. And in came American companies, investors, lowbrow TV shows. Yeah, 
popular shows was a Jerry Springer show. Jerry Springer. <laughs> yeah. Oh. We used to think it's all real. People throwing chairs at yeah, each other yeah, all and those all things this. And, yeah. And then um, watching a Baywatch was a shock for us because that's something completely against our Indian culture at that time. Great moments in globalization. Kansas City IT entrepreneur Manuj Mane Thumaril says when he was a kid in India, there was one model of car on the road. The Hindustan Motors ambassador was so noisy that kids playing on the street could safely hear it blocks away. And then came the affordable, fuel-efficient Suzuki car. Its only problem? Too quiet. We used to tell people, be careful, those cars doesn't make any sounds. Mane Thumaril graduated college and then studied programming in India. And that's a key ingredient to the country's catch-up recipe, which includes education, democracy, openness, investment, entrepreneurs. He was hired in the Bangalore office of the Digital Equipment Corporation, based in faraway Massachusetts. At the time, U.S. tech firms were recruiting heavily in India. And I think the primary motivation was that year 2000 computer problem, Y2K problem. They were going to rewrite the code, so they need huge manpower. Eventually, he got hired by a firm in Silicon Valley, and then he moved to Kansas City to form his own company. Why there? Nice people, cheaper housing. Only thing we didn't like was the winter, the cold. And there are other disconnects. Many Indians are vegetarians in the land of Kansas City barbecue, trying to grasp American jokes. So when I sit in meetings, somebody crack a joke, and I will have to synchronize my laugh with them. And then later ask, what did it mean? <laughs> like all business owners, Mani Thumaril competes on price. And often, the best bang for his buck is to outsource the simpler IT work back to India. And that revenue back home is helping to fuel a rising consumer economy. The average income in India is rising three times faster than it is here. Economist Branko Milanovic. We're really talking here about a rebalancing of the world and significantly higher incomes in Asia. And I think openness and globalization played a very important role in that. The upshot? Today, there's a thicker global economic middle. It is a very favorable, very good development. And it led to what I called actually the largest reshuffle of incomes since the Industrial Revolution. And some believe that despite the recent backlash, the U.S. will remain connected to the India growth story. Ramanan Lakshminarayan is an economist and epidemiologist who lectures at Princeton. He says both countries are connected by language, democracy, technology, and worldview. These are places that will be connected in mind, certainly not by geography, but certainly in mind space, which is the most important space. I don't think an H-1B problem of today or... One crazy guy in Kansas is going to change that story. A U.S. citizen, Lachman Orion now lives in India, where he started a company called Health Cubed. Its device brings diagnostic tests, cholesterol, pregnancy, HIV, malaria, to the village masses. And India's health market is the next big thing. As you grow wealthier, you actually want the health in order to be able to enjoy that wealth. There's no point dying off at the age of 30, you know, after you've made a lot of money. For India's catch-up, there's still a long way to run. The average income per person there is about $2,000, compared to about $57,000 here. And at the center of this is cricketeers in places like Kansas City, global middlemen in a global game. Right now, laughing at an American reporter trying to play theirs. (laughs) 
And that's the last word in this Marketplace special trade-off, stories of globalization, backlash, how we got here, and what may lie ahead. Even though this hour is wrapping up, the conflicts we talked about continue as the U.S. wrestles with how to engage the world and how the world wants to engage with us. You'll be hearing a lot more on the air and on our Marketplace podcasts. Meantime, head over to Marketplace.org to see our past coverage, plus a video about the winners and losers of globalization that may surprise you. And that would be starring Scott Tong. Nice job, Scott. And starring a lot of graphics and video covering up Scott Tong. This trade-off special is produced by Haley Hirschman. Our editor is Eve Tro, and Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Sitara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. And a special thanks to Lizzie O'Leary and the Marketplace weekend team for letting us drive the bus this week. I'm Sarah Gardner. And I'm Scott Tong. Thanks for listening. This is APM.